Hi, welcome to the Indie Wine Podcast, episode 33. My name is Matt Wood. Usually we have an interview or one subject running through an episode, but this episode will be a little different. Doing research for episodes, I often come across a lot of stories and people who can't fill a full episode, but the stories of both deserve to be heard by others, I think. Sometimes these older publications just have weird and random columns, sections, or sometimes it's just a little throwaway sentence. Nearly all of these are pre-prohibition. Some of these I'll read the article just how it's written, and others I'll be combining a few sources into one story. Here we go. We're going to start off with a story about the Andriano Winery. The story is published October 18th, 1928 in the San Jose Mercury Herald. And the great wine historian Charles L. Sullivan called it an interesting prohibition story. To my knowledge, he never actually wrote about it, only mentioning it as a footnote in an interview with Mario Gemello. And you can check out episode 25, Rain on Montebello Ridge, to hear more about the Gemello story. I've never seen any other info about the Andriano winery. I'll read the article. 40,000 Gallons of Wine Seized by Sheriff Lyle Mother Goes to Jail in Place of Bedridden Husband 40,000 gallons of wine, the largest quantity of liquor ever seized in a single raid in Santa Clara County, were confiscated yesterday by Sheriff George W. Lyle, Mrs. Eugenia Andriano, 47, the mother, and several children were confined in the county jail and charged with unlawful possession of liquor. The seizure was made by Deputy Sheriffs Ben Torres and George Burns, acting on a search warrant obtained through the evidence of an undercover agent and the employee of the sheriff. The warrant called for the arrest of Joseph Andriano, but when he was found ill in bed, his wife volunteered to go to jail in his stead. Near Los Altos The liquor was seized in four buildings on the Andriano Vineyard at Box 341 Alta Mesa Road, in the hills about four miles northwest of Los Altos. It was found in containers ranging in size from quart bottles to vats with a capacity of several thousand gallons. The liquor in the smaller containers was moved in two truckloads to the county jail and a deputy sheriff left on guard over the remaining store on the ranch. On the place, the officers also found two wine presses which had been in operation recently. A considerable proportion of the wine had just recently been made. Refused to talk. How long the place had been in operation or through what channels the wine was marketed could not be ascertained. Members of the Andriano family declined to talk. Mrs. Andriano made an unsuccessful attempt to raise bail at Mountain View. And this failing, surrendered to the sheriff and was confined in the county jail until late last night when she was released on $1,000 bond furnished by Justice C.L. Witten. That's the end of the story there. And that's the story of the Andriano Winery. Like I said, it's crazy. I've never heard anything else about it. The winery still had its bond as late as the 1950s. Here's Mario Gemello talking to Charles Sullivan about it in an interview. They were there for a long time. My dad knew Mrs. Andriano from way back. Her son Leo became an attorney, and he became my father's attorney. He also handled my mother's estate and my mother's older sister's. They had a vineyard back there. You can see where the vineyard used to be near Highway 280. 280 put them out of business in the 60s. It went right through the winery. 
On the hillside there, you can see a large number of very large homes today. Most of her sales were to local people. A lot of Stanford students and faculty bought their wine there. They made red wine. Later on, when the vineyard wasn't producing much, she bought grapes from a grape broker in the Central Valley. He had a farm in Sunnyvale, but in the autumn during the grape harvest, he'd go into the valley and buy grapes and bring them back here to sell to wineries. We bought some from him one year. Okay, so on to the next one. Most of this is true or true-ish, but sources vary, and it was a wild life. You'll get the idea. This one's called George. George was born in 1794 in North Carolina. His father had fought in the Revolution under General Green and settled here to raise a family. Eleven children later, and the family needed some more breathing room. Packing up, they moved to Missouri, which at the time was on the edge. Still, just a territory and some real pioneer country. It was the type of area you could have plenty of space to stretch out if you worked hard and had a little luck. He learned to shoot in the woods and would soon be fighting under Daniel Boone's son in the War of 1812, alongside his five brothers. When the fighting finished up, he settled down to start a family, raise some cattle, and do some hunting. A formerly trusted neighbor embezzled most of the family savings that he was watching for them. This put George back to working the wilderness. It would be 17 years before he saw any of his family again, and then not all of them. Driving cattle teams in New Mexico in 1825 led to trapping across the Southwest. He joined up with a party in Santa Fe, and moving through the Southwest towards the Colorado River, they passed ancient adobe structures and long-abandoned aqueducts and canals. This was mostly Apache land, and trappers were rarely welcome. They soon enough came across the few survivors of the Kentucky trapper James O. Patty's group. George's party now numbered 32. Among the party was William Wolfskill, who would later go on to own one of the largest vineyards in Southern California, and additional land in Northern California. Pegleg Smith as well, who might have found a great deal of gold in this Colorado desert, and probably lost it all again if he did. People still search for Pegleg's lost gold mine. George's next expedition would be his own. With the money he had left over after sending most back to his family, plus a little credit, he and his party would head up the Colorado River. Alongside the river they marched, laying in caches and supplies as they went. This served to have some stocks of food and supplies for the weary return trip home and to lighten their loads, all the better to carry more beaver pelts. George's first expedition had a much more peaceful existence with the tribes along the route than most. Upon a successful return and loaded with beaver hides, another expedition called and he found himself more northward, near the Rockies and north of present-day Salt Lake City. Here, he met Hugh Glass, the famous mountain man and inspiration for the film The Revenant. Glass's adventures included escaping from the pirate ship he was employed on and swimming to temporary safety. He and his fellow escapee were soon captured by a local tribe. His partner was killed, and George was only able to save himself with the bribe of a large cake of vermilion pigment. While trapping near Yellowstone, he was mauled by a bear when he got caught between a mother and her cubs. 
and then left for dead by the two men hired to watch over him. A year and a half later, he was able to confront them again in person, getting his rifle back in the process. Later, he would be shot with an arrow, traveling 700 miles with it wedged against his spine. Much of Glass's story was relayed to George by a fellow trapper in the party. While out hunting bear, our George became friendly with the famous Jedediah Smith, who gave accounts of California, both its natural beauty and the rivers teeming with salmon and beaver. These enticed George to no end. The Wolfskill Expedition of 1830 gave George his chance for California. Taking the old Spanish trail, which was kind of new at the time, they got lost at 10,000 feet elevation, encountering snowstorms lasting days and then rainstorms when it got too warm to snow. The trail winds through present-day New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and Arizona before crossing into California near the northern part of the Mojave Desert. Arriving in Los Angeles at Mission San Gabriel in their weathered buckskin, they were welcomed into the mission. Staying long enough to recover from the crossing and to pick up a little extra work, George soon found himself on a small ship owned by William Dana, hunting otters near the Santa Barbara coast. He even at one point navigated the Channel Islands in a small self-made craft framed from timber and covered in elephant seal hides. This was a real Missouri-style riverboat, but not made for the ocean or for saltwater. Keeping on the move, he made his way up the El Camino Real to Monterey, and then further north to the town of Yerba Buena. San Francisco now, which in the year of 1833, was in the midst of a cholera epidemic. Out on a trapping trip with George Nidavar, they rescued an emaciated Indian child whose family had appeared succumbed to cholera. Feeding her back to health, they had her cared for at Mission Dolores. They later proceeded north through Benicia, which in 20 years would be the state capital for a year, before they ended up in Petaluma. George found that Alta California suited him just fine. A man of many skills, he worked at the Mission San Rafael and Sonoma for about two years, repairing buildings and making shingles. He even shingled the home of Mariano Vallejo in Sonoma, becoming friends with the leader of the Californios in the process. Out on his horse one day, he crossed over the mountains and looked down into the Napa Valley. Seeing it for the first time, he exclaimed, It was paradise. It is here I would like to live and die. He received two leagues of land from Vallejo. George wanted less, but that's the smallest amount Vallejo was willing to give. His land grant of the Rancho Camus was confirmed in 1836. A league is about 4,500 acres, and George would obtain another one a few years later from the Rancho La Jota land grant on Howell Mountain. He would, of course, need to become a Mexican citizen to obtain these grants. Now he was not just George. He was Don Jorge Concepcion. He was the first white settler in the Napa Valley. With the aid of Mission Indians, he built a Kentucky-style blockhouse, a.k.a. log cabin. The first floor recessed into the earth so it could double as a small fort when under siege. Soon, mission grapevines gifted by Vallejo were in the ground, and a flour mill and then a sawmill were constructed. Thus, wine growing began in the Napa Valley. This still heavily timbered land was perfect for his shingle-making skills. Bears roamed this land and would be seen and killed regularly. 
Sometimes he would see 50 bears in a 24-hour span, occasionally killing five or six in a day even. This land, of course, was really the land of the Camus Indians, who George seemed to get along with well enough. At the very least, much better than many other white settlers of the time. He relied on them plenty. All but removed from news of the outside world for the first five years in the valley, it wasn't until 1841 when a party coming down through Oregon with fellow Missouri man Joseph Childs that George was able to have his family come join him. Childs returned to Missouri to bring George's two daughters west, one who he had never met before, along with the husband of the elder one. George's wife had remarried by then, and his son had passed away. Their journey west was uneventful for the time. Childs himself was deeded three leagues of land and gives his name to a valley still. George would go on to serve as a mediator during the Bear Flag Revolt, keeping his home open to those on both sides of the fight. He claimed to have had some dreams in 1847 that a party of immigrants was trapped in the Sierras. Although by this time in the outside world, the word was spreading. He, along with Vallejo and others, were instrumental in the second relief expedition for the Donner Party, some of whom would stay at his home for a time. Back to those mission grapevines he had planted. We have a couple descriptions of his early Napa winemaking. The first from Charles Krug in 1859. They offered me a cup of elegant claret, which had been fermented in large cowhides, tied to and spread out with lassos between four trees and filled with grapes crushed by Indians. In the lowest place of the hide stuck a little plug, and by pulling it out of the cup was filled with glorious drink. I think it's important to note there that elegant and glorious are in quotes. His granddaughter Mary Bucknell gives a similar description. I have a very distinct recollection of seeing the most primitive and earliest methods of winemaking, The grapes were put in rough troughs, and the Indians, girt with their loincloths only, trampled out with their bare feet the mass until it was reduced to a pulp. This pulp was then placed in suspended oxkins. They were hung from four strong stakes sunk in the ground, and when the fermentation process was complete, a hole was made and the wine, so-called, was drawn off. Both of these accounts also vibe with the early mission winemaking that we discussed in episode 29. His wine did get better, and from the initial 200 gallons, output was bumped up to around 5,000 a year. He remarried in 1855 and passed away in 1865, keeping his land grants together until his death. He was laid to rest in the town of Sebastopol in the Napa Valley. It was realized that a town over near Sonoma already had that name. A year or so later, that would change. The town should be named after George, Yountville. Next up is a funny story about Cabernet Pfeffer. There's lots of funny stories in hindsight about this grape, mainly because it's been said to be about a half dozen grapes over the years, but if you see it today, it's almost for sure Mortal. There's lots more about Cab Pfeffer in episode 32. This is from the Pacific Wine and Spirits Review. Charles Sullivan alludes to this case in his Companion to California wine book. Judge Lorigan on Pfeffer's Cabernet Mention was made in the review of January 21, 1897 of a decision by Judge Lorigan of San Jose, 
by which the so-called Pfeffer's Cabernet was declared to be a Cabernet within the same meaning of the Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc, and of the further fact that a judgment was recorded in favor of Charles B. Ryland of San Jose and against R. Henry Jr. for $1,068.35 on account of this classification. Judge Lorigan's views on this unheard of and absurd classification of Pfeffer's Cabernet is as follows. The contract does not provide for the delivery of any particular variety of the Cabernet grape. It calls for Cabernet grapes generally. As there are different varieties in plaintiff's vineyard, if defendant wished to purchase a particular variety, it was his business to limit the contract to that variety. As he did not, he must pay for all the grapes which were delivered of a known Cabernet variety, whether they were Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, or Pfeffer's Cabernet. That of itself is enough to amuse anyone familiar with the ampliography of the vine. The so-called Pfeffer's Cabernet has no more right to be called a Cabernet than has a Zinfandel. In order to learn its history, we consulted Mr. C.A. Wetmore, who said recently, I don't care particularly to mix up in this question. The whole thing is a swindle from beginning to end anyhow, and to tell the exact truth about it might invite an unnecessary wrangle. The Pfeffer's Cabernet is a Cabernet as a fraud to begin with. It was not, and is not, and never will be a Cabernet. To be brief, I first met with the wine from this grape about 1880. Captain St. Huber, who was then in San Jose, showed it to me. The wine was considerably above the average, and I hunted up its history. The vine, as I was told, was originally in the collection of the Jesuit College at Santa Clara. Mr. Pfeffer, so I was told, got it from there. For want of a better name, it was called Pfeffer's Burgundy. I do not know that it has ever been properly identified as of yet. Mr. H.W. Crabb believes he has identified it as the Robin Noir, and I understand the College of Agriculture at Berkeley has adopted this name but I'm not yet convinced that this is the right one. For me, at least, it still remains in the unidentified class, together with Crab's Burgundy and West's Prolific. To return to its history, however, along about 1884, Professor Hilgard is running over the state at the expense of the Viticultural Commission. He went to Natoma, among other places, and saw, I suppose, for the first time in his life, the Cabernet Franc. Afterward, he rushed down to the Santa Clara Valley one day, claimed to have identified the Pfeffer variety as the Cabernet Franc. He must have been misled because the berry was small and the bunch long. He don't claim it now, however, as you see, for Pfeffer's Burgundy is Robin Noir with him. Well, in the meantime, J.B.J. Portal, formerly of San Jose, had propagated the variety quite freely. Cabernet Sauvignon cuttings were selling at $25 per thousand along about 1883 and 1884, and Portal wanted to sell his cuttings of Pfeffer's Burgundy at that comfortable price. Armed with Hilgard's identification, he came up to one of the Viticultural Commissions about 1884 and wanted the convention and the State Viticultural Commission to declare the variety a Cabernet. I fought it off and beat it. Portal went back to San Jose, however, sold all the cuttings he could of Pfeffer's Cabernet on the strength of Hilgard's word, and immediately thereafter, the commission and I became the subjects of endless attack and unlimited abuse from the San Jose Herald. We got it in season and out of season, and from all I could ever learn, because we would not sanction a fraud. I never knew how far Pfeffer was concerned in the whole matter, if at all. Mr. Henry can thank Hilgard for this $1,000 judgment against him, 
Hilgard and Hilgard alone is responsible for it originally, though Portal helped it along very materially. I don't know how far Judge Lorigan's decision is good law. That is not for me to say, for no one can tell what facts were presented to him, and he had to judge solely by facts presented in the course of the trial. His decision, however, don't make Pfeffer's Burgundy a peer of the Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. Captain St. Hubert scouts the idea of calling the variety a Cabernet. No more a Cabernet than it is a Zinfandel, said he, and all the decisions of the courts won't change its character. I am sorry that Mr. Henry has a judgment against him on account of this foolish nomenclature. Pfeffer's Burgundy is what it used to be called when I was in the Santa Clara Valley. In the next issue, there's a short little follow-up to the original story. As to Pfeffer's Cabernet. Mention was made in the last issue of the review in regard to the identification of Pfeffer's Burgundy as the Robin Noir by Mr. H.W. Crabb of Oakville. Inasmuch as Mr. Richard Henry Jr. of Mountain View has been mulleted to the amount of over $1,000 by the wrong nomenclature of this variety, Mr. Crabb's experience becomes of immediate interest. Of course, I first knew of this vine as Pfeffer's Burgundy, he said recently, and as I was experimenting with all the varieties I could obtain, I naturally secured this one. Sometime afterward, I was struck by the resemblance of this variety with the Robin Noir, I sent to France for some cuttings of this variety, planted them, and when the vine grew and bore fruit, there was no difficulty in identifying the variety. The Pfeffer's Cabernet, so-called, is not, needless to say, a Cabernet at all, but is the Robin Noir. So I guess that kind of settled it for the time. But it is thought to have been a lot of different grapes over the years. Here we have a story from John L. Beard, the winemaker we met in episode 29 on the Mission San Jose and Fremont wine history describing his land. John Beard was the son of Elias Lyman Beard, who was one of the first settlers of the old Mission San Jose lands, and through sketchy dealings owned at one point nearly the entire land grant. This article appeared in the Chicago Times. John L. Beard's Productions One of the latest arrivals from California in the Midwinter Fair is A.F. Schumann of this city, proprietor of the Hotel Colonies at Cornell Avenue and 5th Street. He was away from Chicago about nine weeks, going via New Orleans at Mardi Gras time, approaching San Francisco via Southern California, and returning by way of Denver and Manitou. He says he saw Chicago in every half hour during his absence and that they were the only ones who appeared to have any money. Mr. Schumann is so thoroughly charmed with Southern California that he is seriously thinking of purchasing it. When he first reached that section of the country, he was a trifle skeptical and did not believe all the stories he heard of California's wonderful resources and products. One day, he met J.L. Beard, one of the big wine growers of Centerville, Alameda County. Mr. Beard is a member of the famous Bohemian Club of San Francisco, the only real Bohemian Club, by the way, that has ever been a success. And he delights to talk of the glorious climate and its wonderful results. What do you raise out here anyway? asked Schumann for the purpose of calling him down. Everything, replied Beard enthusiastically. See here? And he pulled a document from his inner pocket. Here is the bill of fare of a dinner I had recently. Everything on it was raised on my place. Everything, mind you. Those oysters on the half-shell? 
came from the bay in front of the place. So did those terrapin. The salt came from the evaporated water of the bay, and I grow my own little peppers and make my own vinegar. The fish was caught in the bay. I grow the lettuce and all of the ingredients in the mayonnaise dressing I raised. Frog legs? Yes, the frogs were caught in a stream on my place. The mutton chops were from my own sheep, and the pork chops from my own hogs. The capons were of my own raising. I made my own sugar from beets, and the coffee was brewed from chicory and the coffee pea. I grew the olives and made the olive oil. The artichokes, onions, almonds, raisins, beans, and prunes were all from my own garden. Even the mustard I manufactured on my own place. The milk came from my own cows and the cheese from my cow's milk. I also grew the rhubarb, gooseberries, currants, cherries, apricots, plums, pears, peaches, apples, quinces, potatoes, and grapes. Wine of my own make was served with every course, and we wound up with oceans of my own champagne. Now, where on earth can you equal a climate that can produce all the elements of a dinner like that? Beard's property at the time ran from basically about the foothills that are above Highway 680 today in Fremont, all the way down across where Highway 880 would be and into the southern bay waters of San Francisco Bay. The last salt evaporating ponds there closed real recently. There was a great festival for the harvest season of 1897 in St. Helena in the Napa Valley. Even had a poet. I've found a couple articles about it. They're really informative, but quite long, so I'll tell you a little bit about how it went. Saturday, November 13th, 1897. Harvest is finished in the still-developing Napa Valley. It was a large harvest for row crops, tree crops, and the grape crop. It's a little strange that the grape crop was being celebrated. Phylloxera was running wild through the Napa Valley at the time. But this year, everything was looking bright. The affair started around 10 in Hunt's Grove. All of St. Helena showed up. Population was likely around 2,000 in those days, and people came from all over the valley, and some from even further away. The morning train from San Francisco was packed, and the Southern Pacific Railroad lowered the fare so more could join in the festivities. Flags waved. Many residents of the hometown were decked out in cardinal and green, following the lead of the local high school. A member of the Beringer family was president for the day and gave a rousing opening speech before the festivities began. The ship, the Independence, lent its band to the occasion. They arrived on the train from Mare Island. Squash, pumpkin, tomatoes, corn, and grapes were piled high as decorations. More of a bounty than a six-mule team could carry, it was said. Food wasn't just being displayed. A feast was being prepared too. The tables could seat 500 at a time. Just far enough away from the crowds, set under a row of trees, sat the food stations. Fresh baked loaves of bread, chili sauce, giant pots of boiling beans, potatoes and sweet potatoes, boiling coffee and other refreshments. Chefs were carving beef to order, but the centerpiece of the meal would soon be done. A California favorite. And even though they had moved away from the techniques and grapes of the early settlers, 
the Bull's Head Barbecue remained. Crowds gathered around as the dirt pits were dug up and the meat that had been cooking for 30 hours was carefully pulled out of the pits before being devoured by the throngs. There was no recipe included in the article, but the California way would be to stuff the cleaned head with mint, oregano, and rosemary. There was always a child around who would volunteer. Afterwards, wrapping it tightly with burlap and then some wire to be able to easily lift it out of the pit when finished. The burlap would be soaked with wine before being lowered down into the pits. Palm leaves or sometimes banana leaves would have already been placed on the hot stones to protect the meat and burlap from burning and more leaves would be added on top of the packages. Dirt was shoveled into cover, chefs keeping a watchful eye, and any escaping steam would see an extra shovelful of dirt. A cross in the earth and a glass of red wine would bless the meat as it cooked. After the allotted time, the hole would be unsealed and the bundles lifted out to be carved. The cheeks would be saved for the asador. Everyone joined in for this party in St. Helena. An intramural-style football game between the St. Helena High School and the Cogswell College of San Francisco was a welcome treat, even if a little low-scoring at 4 nothing visitors. And the Mare Island Band played past midnight, with folks dancing throughout. Most of the poem is lost to time, but here's the end of it. Then gather around our barbecue, this oxhead feast prepared for you. Olives and cheese, beans, bread, and wine. On these, we ask you all to dine. Sing, shout, and laugh, and banish care. And woe to anyone who dares to fret and frown this festal day. Let joy and gladness hold full sway. Sounds like quite a party. Here's another description of visiting the wine region around Southern California in the late 1880s. This comes from the book Letters from California by Harriet Harper. The other day, we took a trip to the San Pedro Winery. The day was like one of those rare days of Indian summer with a dreamy haze that seemed somehow to temper hard facts and summon back lost illusions. The bright blue of the sky was softened with a faint film. The air was like the touch of soft fingers. The great mountains, wrapped in their weird, misty mantles, seemed filled with a sad, strange gentleness. The sounds of life fell on our car with a muffled, unfamiliar resonance. As we made our way through quiet walnut groves, our feet rustled over the dull brown leaves beneath. Above our head, a bird was singing in wild ecstasy. All about us teemed with a peculiar, personal pathos. It was like surprising some sweet, undreamed secret, like a long, deep look into the unguarded heart of a friend. Here and there, we picked up a walnut. Someone gave us flowers. We passed great stretches of dismantled vineyards. And at length, our loitering steps brought us to the San Pedro Vineyards and San Pedro Winery. We were first plied with all the grapes we could eat. Great, brown, luscious bunches. Then we watched the manufacture of wine. On the outside of one of the buildings in a great open bin, the cartloads of grapes are first dumped. A man who is stationed there rakes the grapes into what looks very much like a cane carrier. This cane carrier, or rather grape carrier, takes the grapes up into the second story of the building, where passing under a great wheel the fruit is crushed 
and from one side throws out the stems, and from the other trickles off in a little sluggish stream through a wooden conductor into the adjoining building. This is the wine cellar. Here are huge tanks filled with wine. Stepladders lie against their great grim sides, and when the fair-faced, good-natured man in charge, whose countenance was splashed with the gore of the grape, invited me to investigate the contents of those huge wine vats, I did so. I looked into the one where the tiny stream was running ever so slowly. Then I looked into another where liquid and fruit were together and bubbling as hard as though all of the witches of Macbeth were urging it on. It was not boiling, however, the man told me. I evidence to the contrary. It was merely fermenting. It takes from two to three years to make wine, requiring a great deal of attention and care, and every now and then it is drawn off from one tank to another by means of a long hose. The white or muscat grape makes first from the sluggish little stream, angelica and muscatel, the fruit and drippings of juice going to make an inferior wine. The ordinary red grape makes from the first juice port, from the fruit and drippings, the common red wines, such as claret. One corner of the first building was set aside for distilling brandy. Brandy, port, sherry, tokay, angelica, muscatel, and claret were ranged side by side in the sample room. The taste of new wine, just as it is crushed from the grape, is simply atrocious. This winery manufactures 15,000 gallons of wine annually, which the owner, a German, acknowledged to be a moderate manufacturer. Tokay wine, made from the flaming Tokay grape, is the rarest and richest of all the wines. Beautiful as amber, it is a nectar fit for the gods. Our six months' trip together has come to an end. We have realized all our dreams. We have received rare returns, and courtesy and kindness have met us on every hand. The fascination of California has laid strong fingers upon us and will scarcely loose its hold. But our sightseeing for a time is over, and life must slip back into somewhat of the conventional groove. And now, I clasp your hand loathfully, lingeringly, and in the words of that old Mexican woman at Santa Barbara, I give you, adios, adios, adios. Okay, last but not least, one more old poem I found called The Label Was There. It's about California wine. A constant theme of pre-prohibition trade papers is California winemakers trying to get their wines accepted in New York, and it seems a constant struggle for them. New Orleans and some other countries even are easy, but New York is the tough one. The label was there. Twas a solid mugwump who went to dine, and when the wine was placed on the table, he said, take away that American wine and bring me wine with a foreign label. So they brought him wine with a foreign brand, and the diner drank it and thought it fine. But the wine was the wine of his native land, of the vintage 1889. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Hopefully some of these have interest to others out there and not just me. Based on the feedback, I think they will. Hope you enjoyed. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening and the Instagram at IndieWinePodcast. And feel free to email IndieWinePodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or feedback. 
If you can tell your wine friends about the podcast too and help spread the word, I'd really appreciate it. Rating or subscribing helps too. There's also a Patreon set up if you feel like supporting the podcast monetarily to allow for more episodes, more travel, and to help defray other costs. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode. Have a good one.